Good evening, and a, a very, very warm welcome to each and every one of you here to St. Paul's this evening. My name is Mark Oakley, and I'm the Chancellor here at the Cathedral, and it is my pleasure to welcome both you and our speaker this evening. I'll introduce the speaker to you in a moment, but for those of you who are uninitiated in the ways uh, these events work, let me just very quickly explain. Uh, in a moment, Malcolm Geit will speak about Samuel Taylor Coleridge as poet and person of faith, living, acting, responding to politically turbulent times. He'll speak for around 30, 35 minutes or so, and then we will have plenty of time for you to ask questions. And if you have a question at any point in the evening, just write it on the back of your programme and then hold it up to be collected. Don't feel too self-conscious. We know that you don't need the toilet. Just hold it up. We will then collect them and uh, all the way up to about 740 will be collecting those questions of you. Please keep them very brief and legible, if you can. At the last event, we seemed to have an audience of GPs. Uh, so if you, if you could keep them legible. We're also taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag Mariner. So if you'd like to send us your question through your mobile, just type in the question and include hashtag Mariner, and we will find it. Your questions then are sent up to me at the laptop here and I will put as many of them as I can to Malcolm. We will end at 8 o'clock. Then there's a bookstall here where you can buy pre-publication copies of Malcolm's wonderful new biography of Coleridge at a very handsome discount, may I say, tonight. And he's kindly said that he will sign copies at this desk over here on my right, your left. There are also copies of his own and Coleridge's poetry for sale as well. And so it now gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker to you. Dr. Malcolm Geit is a poet, priest, songwriter and academic. He is the chaplain of Girton College, Cambridge. He teaches supervises in the Divinity Faculty at the university there, and he's in very high demand as a lecturer, both here and in the United States, on theology and literature. He's published three books of poetry, two anthologies, and for what it's worth, I really do commend uh, those books of poetry of his to you very highly. Malcolm, though, also has a rock band called Mystery Train and is part of a jazz poetry performance collective called Rip Rap with three CDs out on Cambridge Riffs and iTunes. And he rides a gigantic motorbike to all his gigs. Elizabeth Foy asked me if I was jealous of this I said maybe, but I think I'm more of a sedan chair sort of person. <laughs> so Malcolm is not your standard C of E vicar. This is not the bland leading the bland. 
What is extraordinary about him is the breadth of his joy in life. I've always thought every time I meet him, this uh, exuberant, passionate joy in life, his engagement with both the light and the shadow, and of course, how the gospel dispels illusions without leaving us disillusioned. And you'll find all that in his poetry and in his songs and in his encounters with the people lucky enough to have him as their teacher and chaplain. And I am pretty sure you will find it all here tonight. I'm thrilled that he's here to talk to us about Samuel Taylor Coleridge, poet, theologian and activist, and what we might learn from him in our own lives in these extraordinary times we live in. So would you please join me in welcoming Malcolm Guide. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, and uh, thank you for that kind introduction. It is an ancient mariner. He stoppeth one of three by thy long grey beard and glittering eye. Now, wherefore stopst thou me? Those are the famous opening lines of the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And you may remember that uh, it starts with three chaps going off to a wedding perfectly innocently, hoping to get there possibly a little bit late already, when someone uh, with a, um, a glittering eye and a skinny hand and a long grey beard accosts one of them with this line, it is an ancient mariner. And this one of the three, the unlucky chap who's been accosted by what he calls a grey beard loon, finds he can't, cannot choose but hear. And his two mates go off to the wedding. And there he is, transfixed. And he asks that question, now wherefore stops thou me? Which at the beginning I think is just, a, why me? Why was I the unlucky one, singled out by this embarrassing street person? By the end of the poem, when that wedding guest has been told a life-changing story, he realises that it wasn't random at all. The mariner says towards the end, I pass like night from land to land. I have strange power of speech. The moment that his face I see, I know the man who must hear me. To him my tale I teach. And we realise at the end that this is not random at all, that this person needed to hear this story at this point and was completely changed by it. And uh, that has been the experience of, for many readers of the poem. They've known it for a bit, they, they liked it, they knew the famous phrases. Even if you, you haven't recently read it, you will all know parts of the ancient mariner. You will all have somewhere in your minds water, water everywhere. All the boards did shrink, water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. You'll all have somewhere the idea of an albatross tied round your neck. You might have the phrase, a sadder and a wiser man. There'll be scraps of it. But there are also certainly for some people, and I'm one of them, a sense that at some point in your life, the poem, rather like the mariner himself, grips you. 
and says, come with me. I'm going to take you on a needful journey, a journey that may change the way you see the world. Certainly, the poem itself seemed to have burst into Coleridge's life and stopped him in his tracks, much as the, the mariner stops the wedding guest. Um, Coleridge believed that he ought at some point to write a long, great, massive, learned, serious, epic poem in full Miltonic grandeur, addressing the mystery of our fallenness and brokenness, the mystery of evil in the world, the problem of redemption, and at the same time doing so without the immediate Miltonic references fully and explicitly to the Bible, but trying to rephrase those things in a, in a new way. And he believed that somehow it would also involve some odes and hymns. He wanted to write a, an ode to the sun and to the moon and four odes to each of the four elements, and he filled his notebooks, and that was task A, the big project. He never did it. He kept on being interrupted and stopped by one thing or another. And when he and Wordsworth in the winter or the late um, autumn of 1797 wanted to go on a walking tour together uh, in Somerset, they hit upon the novel idea that one of them, or both of them perhaps together as a joint effort, could knock off a quick poem, just a sort of schlock horror gothic ballad, and sell it to a journal for a fiver. And that would um, pay for the trip would cover the expenses of the, of the walking tour. And that's actually inauspiciously how the mariner started. But soon the tale gripped Coleridge and he realised he had something much more to say and he became fully absorbed in it. And um, it wasn't a quick story. In the end, um, the first full version of it was finished by, by March of the following year and uh, it had grown to a poem of some 600 lines. But he never quite let it go. He kept coming back to it. And then, years later, he wrote the wonderful gloss, which speaks to the text and interprets it. And what he wrote was really something extraordinary. The poem itself, like the Odyssey before it, has the classic shape of a journey out and back again. An unnamed ship, the purpose of whose journey we're never told, leaves the familiar, sails south across the line into the southern hemisphere, comes at last to the great ice flows of the Antarctic. The sailors are lost in fog, surrounded by ice. There is nowhere for them to sail. There's no, no shapes of men nor beast we can. The ice was all between. You feel the ice which cracks and growls is going to close in on them. And then, unexpectedly, they see life as sheer grace. At length did cross an albatross. Thorough the fog it came, and then they see it glimmering in the moonlight. And they hail it as a Christian soul. They don't know that this is the bird that will save them, because in the end, the albatross flies towards what looks like impassable ice. And as it says, like the ice did split in a thunder fit, and the helmsman steered us through. Wonderful, all these human sailors dependent on this other life form who gets them a passage. And you think, well, they'd be jolly pleased and say thank you very much to the albatross. And, of course, at this point, we zoom out of the story and Coleridge has the wedding guest say, 
God, shield thee, ancient mariner, from fiends that plague thee thus. Why look'st thou so? With my crossbow, I shot the albatross. That's how the first part of the poem finishes. This random, strange, inexplicable, wanton act of destruction. Just when everything is going perfectly, the mariner does something which not only wrecks his own life, but ruins that of those around him. But that's how we are as human beings, isn't it? Sometimes that's just what we do. The rest of the poem goes on to explore the profound spiritual and material consequences of this seemingly random deed, which, uh, as the poem proceeds, takes on the resonance, the spiritual significance of the primal fall of humankind, of the fall of each of us. And the crew make themselves complicit in the deed. At first they blame him and they hang the albatross. And then they say, oh no, 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 it was actually, you, you, you killed the bird that saved us, that's bad, we blame you. Then the next thing is they say, oh no, you killed the bird that brought the fog and mist, we've got better weather now, so it's probably right to kill the bird. So in fact they take, as it were, an entirely instrumental view. The bird is there to serve their purposes or not, it has no life of its own. But of course... As the poem unfolds, we realise that the albatross indeed has its own proper life, its own proper meaning, and that they learn eventually through a dream that in this one random, arrogant act of human destructiveness, they have disturbed a delicate balance in the polar region. They have unleashed unimaginable forces which they cannot cope or contend with, we discover in the poem that there is a deep animus or spirit, the polar spirit, nine fathoms deep beneath the keel, who is, as it were, the guardian spirit of the whole polar region and who loves the albatross. In fact, we also learn that the albatross loved the man who shot it. And as the poem proceeds, these unbalanced and in, at first hostile and vengeful forces are unleashed. Uh, the poem goes on to tell uh, the, the de of the death of the other sailors, the survival of the mariner in an agony of helpless guilt and isolation, in which he curses himself and every other living thing and wishes only to die. And then, at the zero point, as it were, comes, just as the albatross had come in the moonlight, comes another moment, a second moment of unlooked for and unexpected grace. The mariner is so, so isolated, so full of agony that he, he, he says a thousand, thousand slimy things lived on and so did I. He's full of self-loathing. He looks at these water snakes and curses them. But then the moon rises and he looks again. And this time, at last, he forgets himself. He looks at them all as having their own particular and proper and in its own way beautiful and happy life. He says, oh, happy living things. No tongue their beauty might declare. My kind saint took pity on me. I blessed them unaware. And in that blessing, in that renewed vision, in that, if you like, self-forgetfulness and going out wider into the web of creation, something is released in his heart. The albatross falls off and he's able to pray. 
The poem then goes on to show how he eventually returns, aided by angels, his growing spiritual awareness, his discernment of voices that show the height and depth of what he's been going through, his final complete shipwreck as the whole ship goes down, a pilot's boat coming and rescuing him like one that had been seven days drowned, his confession, his absolution, and his vocation to share something of what he learnt of grace and humility and a new humbled and chastened approach to the wider creation. All of those things happen to the mariner. Now, the extraordinary thing, the astonishing thing, is that although Coleridge was only a 25, a carefree young man of 25, when he composed this poem, astonishingly, every one of those narrative elements that I've listed can be paralleled, symbolically or in image, in Coleridge's life as he came to live it after the composition of the poem. And one of the things I've tried to do in the book is to bring out those parallels. But one might just quickly observe that like the mariner, Coleridge sailed away from home, from all that was familiar, both outwardly in his life-changing journeys to Germany and Malta. When he wrote the poem, he'd never even been to sea. Within months, he was sailing across the North Sea and eventually right across the Mediterranean. But he also sailed inwardly, deep into the nightmare world of opium addiction and high into the rarefied regions of metaphysical speculation. Like his mariner, Coleridge endured the agony of loneliness, despair, suicidal thoughts. But also, like his mariner, Coleridge survived the ordeal he was rewarded with visionary experiences of transfigured beauty in the world. And he re returned from his voyage into extremity with a new sense of purpose. And just as the mariner met the pilot and the hermit at the moment his ship was sinking and was rescued by them, so Coleridge was rescued from the shipwreck uh, that he was making of his own life, the shipwreck of addiction and despair by Dr Gilman, with whom he lived his last years. And uh, in the final phase, Coleridge became, like his mariner, a life-transforming teacher, sharing a spiritual vision which linked love and prayer. Practical and mystical love, practical and empathetic prayer, bringing them together again, not separating them out. Um, and also a new humility towards God and nature. So not surprisingly, later, towards the middle of his life, Coleridge came to realise that he was, in fact, his own mariner, came sometimes to refer to himself as that in the beautiful and painfully honest notebooks that he kept throughout his life. And one might ask, how could that possibly have happened? How was it that this 25-year-old could somehow intuit, could somehow sense this profound spiritual journey that hadn't actually happened to him yet? There's a very interesting and beautiful passage about the poetic imagination in the book he published in 1817 called Biographia Literaria, exactly 200 years ago. He published it as a companion to a book of his poems in which at last he published The Mariner with the glass and with his own name on it. And in that book, he has an astonishing analogy, as it were, uh, for the imagination, which he calls at that stage in the book in his own beautiful phrase, the sacred power 
of self-intuition. And what Coleridge says is, he says, you see when a little, he uses the example of the horned fly, the little creature which still at the pupa stage is going to metamorphose, but is, is making its chrysalis, making the hardened, holding open the shape into which it will grow and develop. And he says it, it makes the long protective cones, the shape, for the antennae, which it hasn't yet got, to grow into. He says that's the way the imagination works. It holds open for us, keeps a space, holds open a shape into which we will grow, gives us a sense. And that's why we need artists, why we need poets, why we need musicians, because they can sometimes do that for us. They can intuit that and hold that open. And that's why in a really great piece of music, a great piece of art, a great poem like the Mariner, we keep returning to it and we've grown a little more into it. It feels more spacious. We begin to realise more and more of what it is or has always been saying to us, which we, we haven't quite got ourselves. And um, it's, a, it's a very beautiful passage. Uh, he says, in, 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 uh, let me read you the direct quotation. He says, he adds the further symbol, the wings of the air sylph are forming within the skin of the caterpillar. Those only who feel in their own spirits the same instinct which impels the chrysalis of the horned fly to leave room in its involucrum for antennae yet to come. They know and feel that the potential works in them, even as the actual works on them. So he, he wrote this poem early, and then he began in some ways to live into it. But he lived into all of it. Not just the, the lovely voyage at the beginning and the glorious views, the great descriptions. Not just the nightmare and agony of life in death and the doldrums and the water, water everywhere. That tends to be where people who tell Coleridge's life stop. They say, ah, oh, yes, genius romantic poet, probably depressive, used opium, made a terrible mess of his life, end of story. But actually, it was not the end of the story. Out of that darkness and chaos and self-loathing was a persistent, questing hope and an encounter with grace, with the grace of God, a renewed understanding of the faith that he'd left at home. In the story, in The Mariner, he leaves behind, as he sails away, the kirk, the hill, the lighthouse top. And then when he sails back, he sees them again. And there's a sense in which Coleridge, in his maturity, returned to the faith he was born with and given with. His father was, in fact, the vicar of Ottery St. Mary's. But knowing it for the first time, to borrow T.S. Eliot's phrase, and reimagining it for his contemporaries, showing that it was a much bigger, a much wider, a much more far-reaching and beautiful thing than the sort of small little box of conventional piety that he'd left behind. I say that Coleridge lived all the way through the poem, even to its return. But I sometimes wonder whether we, as a, as a culture, we as a civilization, we as we are now in the beginning of the 21st century, have actually caught up with Coleridge yet. I wonder if we're still somewhere on this voyage 
At the beginning of the voyage, as there was earlier on in our own culture in the Middle Ages and uh, earlier, the sailors all feel a deep kinship with the world around them. They see the sun as a beneficent and personal presence, the moon likewise and the stars. There is, as it were, a covenanted and sacral relationship. After the killing of the albatross, it breaks and changes into decays into a very transactional, very instrumental relationship in which nature is just an accumulation of dead things for people to manipulate. They're only saved in the end by a re-enchantment, a re-sacralizing of nature, a recognition that human beings are not the center of the cosmos. They're not the only species. They're not the only thing with which God is concerned. His covenant is with his whole creation. There has to be both a recognition of beauty and with it a kind of humility. Famously, at the end, the mariner says to the wedding guest, he prayeth best who loveth best all things, both great and small. For the dear Lord who loveth us, he made and loveth all. Coleridge's own intellectual return to the faith came through a deep contemplation of Christ the Logos. Of course, to speak of Christ the Word is appealing to any poet. And he came to see that you could see the whole cosmos, every moment of it, even now, every one of us here, breathing in this place now, as being at this moment spoken into being by the, by, by, by the Logos. He was well acquainted with the writings of Newton and with the more reductive philosophies of Hobbes and Locke and Hume. He understood the possibility of seeing the world in merely mechanical terms, or as he put it, as an immense heap of little things. He understood what he called the watchmaking scheme of things. He was interested in science. But he suggested, as it were, that we could complement or balance that notion of nature as just a collection of meaningless stuff whose mechanism we investigate, as though there were no consciousness, no I am to look at it. He suggested we could balance that with another analogy or metaphor. And the analogy which he, he wanted to bring to the table, to the discussion, was the analogy of language. The cosmos as spoken meaning. He'd anticipated that in the very beautiful poem, which I'm sure many of you may remember and know, um, Frost at Midnight, when he imagined his young son Hartley wandering by the lakes and sandy shores beneath the crags of ancient mountains. And as he imagines that, he says to Hartley, So shalt thou see and hear the lovely shapes and sounds, intelligible, of that eternal language which thy God utters, who doth teach himself in all things, and all things in himself, great universal teacher, he shall mould thy spirit, and by giving, make it ask. That was a poetic gesture of a young man. The mature Coleridge was not content just to respond to materialism and industrialism by writing compensationally nice poems that we could sort of have on our inner hearts to compensate for the grimness of the world. He began to feel that poetic insight might change the very way we see the world, that might, as he put it, 
uh, in Biographia Literaria, might remove the film of familiarity from the world and expose us again to its wonder and its freshness and so to the meaning of the one who makes it for us. As I looked at the extensive literature on Coleridge and wonderful things that have been written about him, he, he kindles enthusiasm, certainly, in his followers. I did find that this whole spiritual insight, this return to the Logos, in the end, to a great Trinitarian theology, this, this desire, as it were, to perceive the universal teacher through the things that are being taught in the universe, um, to root again a sense of God in the consciousness that we have as little I am's in the great I am. I felt some of that was missing and I wanted in, in some way, if I could, to restore a sense of Coleridge, the theologian, and particularly Coleridge who gives us a kind of theology of imagination. And it's all over the place. But often it's in... He didn't write the great Logosophia, the book he wanted to write, but in his letters, I think he gives us, as well as in the great poem, The Mariner, a way forward when we look at the competing ideas on the one hand of a kind of militant new atheism which sees the world as essentially devoid of meaning or meaning itself as illusory, and the kind of almost reactionary retreat into biblical literalism opposing that. Um, he roots instead a new way of seeing the world and doing science in some sense, if you like biblically, of our being made in God's image. Let me just read you, it's just a lovely piece, um, part of a letter he wrote to a friend of his who was um, not an academic, not a professor, not a philosopher. He was actually a tanner uh, in, in, a, in a Somerset village. But Coleridge, who didn't want to keep learning in the ivory towers but wanted everybody to think and feel, wrote this. He said he's been, just been reading Newton's Optics in the original. I mean, it must be one of the few poets who's done that. And he writes this about Newton. I'm exceedingly delighted with the beauty and neatness of his experiments and with the accuracy of his immediate deductions from them. But the opinions founded on these deductions and indeed his whole theory is, I am persuaded, so exceedingly superficial as without impropriety to be deemed false. Newton was a mere materialist. Mind in his system is always passive, a lazy looker-on on an external world. But if the mind be not passive, if it be indeed made in God's image, and that too in the sublimest sense, the image of the creator, there is ground for suspicion that any system built on the passiveness of the mind must be false as a system. Now, this is before Einstein, before Heisenberg, before the whole actual emergence of the quantum thing that says the observer changes everything. We must account for the seer as well as the seen. So it seems to me that not only has he great poetry of extraordinary psychological acuity to offer us, but he has something to offer us about the debate we're engaged in between the different ways of knowing which constitute science and religion or science and spirituality. I believe mutually enriching and complementary ways of knowing if we can understand the relationship aright. 
but he also, I think, offers us hope. That's really the last thing I want to say about him at this point. He offers us not a retreat into nostalgic religion, not a capitulation to the bleakness and gloom of his day, but a willingness first to look at the worst and then to look at it again in a new light, as the mariner does in the transforming moonlight, and to be willing to learn from the world as it is, to have a, a better, a more humble, but ultimately a more fruitful and blessed way of being in the world. Thank you for listening. Thank you, uh, Malcolm, very much indeed. Now, if you uh, have some questions on the implications of this for our own faith today or basic questions, do not be afraid to ask the basic question. You must go out knowing more than you came in with. Mm. So uh, hold up your questions, uh, and some have come through already, but I'm going to start, if I may. OK, I'm going to be a little devil's advocate here, OK? I, I rather enjoy doing that. Um, maybe because we are reduced by materialism <laughs> uh, and simmered down in our understanding of, of knowledge and truth, but all this talk about imagination, about sacred powers of self-intuition, about removing films of familiarity, um, about imagination somehow being an essential part of how we perceive truth... Yes. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Help us. Tell us okay. what this imagination is and, and how it can be uh, helping us perceive truth, particularly as people of faith. I mean, yeah. it can start sounding a little bit as if, you know, poets of the romantic flavour build castles in the air yeah. and then they move into them. Yes. <laughs> uh, so yeah. let's get down to basics. Okay. What's imagination? So, Why is it important? Okay. So I think the first thing we, we need to say is that Coleridge, in Biographia Literaria, makes a helpful distinction between imagination and fancy. Uh -huh. And the, the, he recognises that we have a capacity, which he calls fancy, Mm. simply to make things up to suit ourselves, mm -hmm. to, to manipulate things, to have little, little daydreams which bear no relation to reality and um, are compensatory fantasies. Yeah. So he acknowledges that. He doesn't think, because he believes that there is something sacred in the imagination, that just because I made it up it must be true. He knew only too well, partly from opium experience, where that leads. Yeah. So, so that's the first thing to say. But when it comes to imagination, um, he makes a, a further distinction. He, he distinguishes between what he calls primary imagination yeah. and secondary imagination. Mm -hmm. Now, primary imagination, this is a very radical thing. People, people read this regularly in literature courses and simply don't get it because it's so, so radical. So what he says about the primary imagination, I mean, I see it in my memory. He says, it is the living power and prime agent, notice the words power and agent, but it is the living power and prime agent of all perception and is a repetition 
in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. That's a big claim. So the first thing to say is that the key word there is perception. Everybody misreads it. They say, oh, he's saying it's the living power of creation. And when Shakespeare writes down and rightly, he's a bit like God in his own world. He's saying nothing of the sort. He's not talking about exalted romantic geniuses. He's talking about everybody here gathered in this beautiful space. He's saying, when you perceive the world, when you perceive it at all, something active and living in you is going out and shaping it. You may receive a lot of data, you know, there may be a stream of stuff coming in, but that's not the world you perceive. The world you perceive in its sense of shape and grace and meaning is also coming out of you. So now, why don't we all live in separate worlds then? Mm -hmm. And he says, what is going on in you is there is a creative, imaginative light in you, which is a repetition or an echo of the creative, imaginative light in the God who made the world. And as it were, material things are, are where the two things meet. But we have an active shaping. That's the first thing he says about primary imagination, that the, very, the most true, true thing about the world out there is already shaped in every act of perception by the human imagination. Mm -hmm. He then goes on to say that what, what he calls the secondary imagination, which is what we would call the artistic or creative imagination, he says is just like that, but it's able to make its own sort of secondary world. But if it does it well, if we do it well, if we make and shape a song or a poem or a piece of music, if we do it from the deepest level, drawing on those principles, on those, those deepest intuitions, which we also have when we see God's world, we can make something which is a container for truth. Mm -hmm. And um, he, he, he believed that, 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 that we, could, we, could, you know, we could stray from that, we could make something that was untrue but that there was a possibility for the human mind to, to, as it were, consciously direct. This is what he said about Shakespeare. He said Shakespeare was a nature humanized, consciously directing a power and implicit, implicit wisdom deeper than consciousness. So he has a very high theology of imagination. Mm -hmm. And I think it's particularly pertinent to us now because as people become more suspicious of organized religion and of institutional religion and vote with their feet and seem to be leaving that and are shy of dogma, I mean, I'm not saying they should be. I mean, I think there are great things in dogma, but that's the way it is. They're often seeking their sense of meaning and transfiguration and purpose in the world of the imaginative arts. So we as a church should really be in conversation with an Orthodox Christian who's tried to think theologically about how the imagination works. Sorry, long answer to a short question. So if you're on, you know, if you're on the BBC News tonight, you've got three minutes to explain mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, the relevance, the implications of Coleridge's thought about the imagination to our current world at the moment so that, you know, that your average BBC mm. viewer can get it. <laughs> What's the drift? What, mm. what are we saying here? Uh, what, what can we take home yeah. with this? Okay. 
of anything you see in the world around you. Don't just ask what it is, ask what it means. Okay. Mm -hmm. Listen to what it's saying, what is being spoken to you through this. And in order to know what it means, you need your imagination. Collective or individual? Both. I mean, I was always struck when I was at university. I, I came across a Coleridge, and, and many of you will know this. He, he, he once said, He who begins by loving Christianity more oh, yes. than truth yeah. will proceed by loving his sect or church better than Christianity and end in loving himself best of all. <laughs> yeah. That's quite a message for it us, moment, message. isn't it? I mean, Coleridge came back to the Church of England, but he didn't, he didn't, you know, sometimes you read about it as though, like, you know, some literary critics seem not to have forgiven Wordsworth and Coleridge for failing to die young, you know. They, they, <laughs> you know, they should, have, they should have lived fast, died young, and made a beautiful corpse, you know. So they're, they're accused of the heinous sin of middle age, and it's assumed that their return to faith and Coleridge's is some sort of you know, final collapse into the comfy armchair of the Church of England. But he didn't come to church in order to fall asleep in the back pew. He came to give the whole thing a wake-up call yes. and um, was campaigning, for example, about the Factory Acts and the conditions of children, got in touch with William Blake, whom hardly anybody knew of at that time, to work together yes. Yes. for a concern uh, about that. Um, he has a very interesting thing to say about strange tales like the mariner he talks about how these apparently supernatural or romantic things these shadows of imagination he says i wanted to transfer from our inward nature a human interest and a semblance of truth sufficient to procure for these shadows of imagination that willing suspension of disbelief which for the moment constitutes poetic faith. Let me tell you the story, and through the story, I'll tell you something you can hear in no other way. Mm -hmm. Okay, questions are coming in, so let's, let's get on to them. Um, there's a question here about suffering, and mm. I was very conscious reading um, your book. I mean, he did, he did go through it. He, he had depression, mm, mm. marital breakdown, he was addicted to opium, and of course he had to dilute that in brandy. Yeah. So he was also drinking, he had anxiety. Um, the opium also gave him really bad constipation. Yeah, terrible. Yeah. So he had terrible enemas. Yeah. Um, he seemed to be attention-seeking as well and, and, and dependent. Mm. So the question here that's come in is, do you think that we need suffering like Coleridge in order to encounter God's grace? That's a very good question. If we're to think of an ideal world in which there'd be no fall, perhaps we wouldn't have. But in a world where we will suffer, whether we like it or not, it is an astonishing grace of God that he should make suffering also a way of grace that in weakness in 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 pain in agony something can reach us that might not reach us any other way i also think that coleridge certainly came to understand that that you have to let god be god and you really have to let him do the work that he needs to do in you 
and not depend on your own strength. Now, the problem for a man like Coleridge is he was unbelievably gifted. And it would be very easy for him to just think, I can fix this, I can do this, I can talk my way out of anything, you know. I just get in the flow and I'm there. And he really needed, almost the only way God could get through was, was for Coleridge to be utterly helpless and to realize that he needed somebody else's strength. Interestingly, of course, that happens to the marinade. The whole ship goes down. He says, swift, of, swift as dreams myself I found within the pilot's boat. And that really did have to happen to Coleridge. So perhaps in the mystery of the beginning of things, there might not need to have been suffering. But given that we're in a world where free will has brought about suffering, it's an extraordinary grace that through suffering we can still be found. And, and what do we mean by, well, what did, what did Coleridge understand by that word grace? I mean, I've always tended to think it means giving more than we owe and receiving more than we deserve. I mean, what, what is grace for, for him? Well, he, he um, it's certainly the receipt of an overabundance, as it were, a surplus of undeserved love. It's the sense that when, at that very point where you have actually given up on yourself and condemned yourself, a voice comes, something is given unexpectedly that rises within you. I mean, there's a very interesting... The Mariner is very beautifully balanced and there are verses that sort of answer each other. So there's a, in the despair, there's a, in the suffering, there's a, the Mariner is unable to pray and he says, I looked to heaven and tried to pray, but or ever a prayer had gushed, a wicked whisper came and made my heart as dry as dust. So that's where we are without grace, if you like. And then, when the moon rises and he forgets himself for a minute and blesses the water snakes, he says, Oh, happy living things, no tongue their beauty might declare. Sure, my kind sake took pity on me, I blessed them unaware. A spring of love gushed from my heart, I blessed them unaware. The selfsame moment I could pray, and from my neck so free, the albatross fell off and sank like lead into the sea. So that difference between the wicked whisper, which is in our own inner voice of self-condemnation, and the unexpected spring of love, that's where grace comes in. Mm, the unexpected spring of love. Reminds me when we had uh, Rowan Williams here saying all the ploys that human beings uh, try to... to make God love them more, mm. where actually Rowan ended up by saying, trying to convince God to love you is really just trying to convince a waterfall to be wet. Yes, that's wonderful. That's brilliant. Well, for Coleridge, the image of the stream or the fountain flowing up was, was the primal image of the goodness of God and of grace. And he, it comes again and again in his poetry, I mean, from Kubla Khan onwards, really. There's a question come in. Do we know how Coleridge's faith went down with the other Romantic poets, like mm. Byron? Ah, now there's an interesting question. Coleridge is, in a sense, unique among the Romantics in having a really thoroughgoing and instructed, fully Trinitarian Christian faith. He was actually quite at loggerheads with Wordsworth on this. He, I mean, Wordsworth genuinely was a bit of a pantheist. Coleridge was never a pantheist, he was perhaps a panentheist. So there's a bit of tension there. The next generation, Keats, Shelley, Byron, 
Shelley loved Coleridge and he loved the Marinette. And unusually, since Shelley wasn't that well-known at that point, Coleridge became aware of Shelley's verse. Shelley went and called on Coleridge when he was in the lakes, and unfortunately, Coleridge was not available. He was up out and fell walking. And, and when Coleridge was told about it later, he said, oh, I wish I'd known. I feel I could have persuaded Shelley out of his atheism. Byron loved Coleridge's poetry, and in fact, personally helped Coleridge when he was in a really bad way and had John Murray publish some of the poems. But of course, Byron was interested in the romantic opium addict Coleridge. And Byron, well, the way that happened was that um, uh, Byron overheard Coleridge reciting Kubla Khan, which is, of course, not published and nobody knew it. And Byron recognised a classic when he heard one and said, this must be published. And, um, uh, but, you know, Byron's an interesting character because there's, I, for all Byron's successes, I actually think that there's quite a, a long, deep inner conversation in Byron with the things of the faith. You know, when he was living his life at its most decadent in, in Venice, you know, he would be completely partying the time away and then he would swim across the lagoon and spend the day with monks in a, you know and, and 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 take part in the liturgy and you know so there was something in Byron that couldn't quite let that go either can you just outline i mean because the questions come in here coleridge departed from the anglican church and joined the unitarians he didn't formally join it but he he candidated for ministry yeah yes in shrewsbury he even I in, shrewsbury, in shrewsbury yes, and yeah. when he was yes he did return it says at the end of his life yeah. if he was around today in 2017 would he depart and then return oh there's an interesting one I think if he was around today, he, I think he would be an Anglican. He had a deep, deep love of the prayer book. And uh, here we are in St. Paul's. He was a massive fan of John Donne, and he annotated Donne's sermons very closely. However, I think he would have been a radical and troublemaking Anglican. I think he... he oh, we like that. He would have fulminated against quite a number of things. Um, and I think he would have been asking um, asking difficult questions as he did you know indeed of the, of the, the, the church of his own day um, so uh, but I, I think he, he had a very in, in biography literaria he has a beautiful sort of exhortation to young writers he says you know if you're thinking about a, a career in the imaginative arts and writing don't try and do it just by yourself professionally and depend upon your writing, you know, because then it'll become a duty and you won't be... You need a, another calling and an avocation. And he says, if you have any shreds of Christian faith in you, he begs them to consider ordination in the Church of England because he says that church will nurture and sponsor in the riches of its liturgy the best of language in you, but will also put you in a place where instead of being shut up in a literary coterie or a university you will be among ordinary people with whom you need and want to communicate and who will teach you. And he has this lovely vision of every vicarage as a kind of little kindling centre of light and conversation and vicars teaching, literally teaching literacy. And he sees a, a real alliance between the best, the heights and depths of the best of human culture and this distinctive calling of the church to be in every parish. And I think he'd be pushing for that strongly. I think he might, he would be a good consultant if you're going to do some alternative forms of worship. I think he could <laughs> probably do you an interesting liturgy. There's a connected question here. I mean, he, he went from Unitarianism yeah. to Anglicanism, which means he, 
he rediscovers the Trinity. Yes, presumably. absolutely. So what's, you know, we want an easy understanding of Coleridge's understanding of the Trinity. <laughs> oh, right. what, what, what was it that, what vision of the okay. Trinity won his heart again? Okay. Um, the first thing to say is that in his, his return to faith, one of the philosophical problems he was wrestling with most rigorously, because he felt it was at the root, he was living through the midst of the Enlightenment period. Mm -hmm. um, the Enlightenment, particularly following Kant, but others as well, made a very, very absolute distinction between subject and object, between the subjective and the objective. Coleridge felt that there was a fundamental problem with that, and that, and that was because the first thing we know about is our own consciousness. We say, I am. He said, well, never mind about Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am. Just say, I am. When you say, I am, obviously I, the subject, is saying I. But what is it being? It is being itself, the object. So, I am, your consciousness right now, actually brings object and subject together. Now, Coleridge believed that that... He understood why they were split up. But he felt that that mystery of I amness mm. was a key to everything else. So when he finally returned to his Bible and began to read it with these open and imaginative eyes, he was deeply struck by, by the words from the burning bush, tell the children of Israel that I am has sent you. And he almost always referred to God as the eternal and mysterious I am. Now, he believed that if everything which was, if you like, subject and everything which also could be really object were... They were like the, you know, the irresistible force and the immovable object was somehow impossibly one in I am. He felt a third must spring forth from that. That bringing together of the impossibles must be constantly and beautifully generative. So just sort of intellectually he began to think that the three in oneness was something to do with the I amness of God. Later on he came to, to deeply read John's Gospel. Mm. His Logosophia book, which he never wrote, was going to be a combined commentary on John's Gospel and the Ancient Mariner, and I wish we had it. And there he sees the word. Now, of course, John's Gospel, you really get into the Trinity. Mm. So he began to speak of, think of God as the one who perceives everything in its glory, passively, if you like, as subject in whom every subjectivity is there, and the one who speaks everything objectively into being as the Logos and the Word, and the one who mediates between the two and is constantly saying, object must become subject, subject must go out to object. When he wrote his, his great essay on poetry, he said, to make the inner outer and the outer inner is the essence of genius in the fine arts. And in the end, that dynamic exchange came to him to make most sense in looking at the first theology of the church and seeing Father, Son and Holy Spirit and the Father speaking the Word and the Word speaking everything into being and the Spirit, as it were, bringing them back into unity again. We won't get that on the BBC News. <laughs> I was going to say, he, he's not easy, is he? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's... Okay. But he, the point is, he doesn't... He doesn't, there's nowhere where he suddenly drops that on you for a great height. No. Let me give you a practical example of how that theology really helped and changed somebody. Mm -hmm. From the beginning, 
Coleridge was a campaigner against the slave trade. Mm -hmm. He wrote a poem against the slave trade as an undergraduate. Mm. And he came to know Thomas Clarkson, who was the real starter of it. He's the who recruited Wilberforce. Mm -hmm. Clarkson, and indeed Wilberforce, like Coleridge, struggled with opium addiction. And there was this irony of this inner bondage while they tried to free the outer. Clarkson fell into a deep depression, complete exhaustion. Not another further idea, because they'd so often presented that case and it was just thrown out by Parliament every time. And he was almost suicidal. And he wrote to Coleridge and said, I'm completely exhausted. I can't hardly speak. I haven't got another idea. And not only that, I'm losing my faith. I don't have any idea of the divine. Mm. What is the spirit? Can you help me? Coleridge writes back and effectively says, don't have any, of the, any idea of the divine. My dear Thomas, you are a divine idea. <laughs> God is speaking you into being now. He hasn't finished. The word has not finished articulating you, Thomas Clarkson, as one of his li little logoi, you know. You're allowing yourself to become an impediment in the speech of Christ, you know. Let him renew you and refresh you. And he had such a... That, that he called... Coleridge called his philosophy the dynamic or communicative philosophy uh -huh. because it was not about God as a distant object or a retired watchmaker. It was about a God who is right there in every act of human perception, assisting it and aiding it, who is the love that flows between every human being, who comes not as a distant thunderer but as a spring of love that gushes from your heart. Mm. And that kind of theology, I mean, you, you know, he could write learned and almost impossible to penetrate metaphysical books about him, but he could also go up to an exhausted human rights campaigner and give him just what he needed to keep going. Mm. And there's always that tension, isn't there, between struggling with a God who is, you know, an object of knowledge, we're trying to know more, and yet yeah. standing back and saying, that's ridiculous, God is, must be the cause of our wonder. Yeah, exactly. And, and you have to sometimes surrender. And, and uh, as Hafiz, that great uh, yeah. poet, says, we have to fall, sometimes we have to fall back on the, on the chairs of our mind <laughs> yes, and just say, I surrender to, the, to that yeah. wonder. Yeah. I, I get this sense from him as he, as he gets older, that the wonder... Uh, and the springs, as yeah. it were, become the focus rather yeah. than the knowledge and the object. Very, very much so. And there are some wonderful accounts of the, the young men who gradually made their way to Coleridge at Highgate. He became known, I mean, I think Carlyle coined the phrase the sage of Highgate. Now, Carlyle didn't have a lot of time for Coleridge and wanted to mock him for it. But actually, he said that for some people, that little house in Highgate was a Dodona, was an oak grove. And they, said they, they felt there was something about Coleridge which was almost like, well, it's almost like the figure in Kublai Khan. Mm. You know, all would cry, beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair. Weave a circle round him thrice and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise. Mm. And there was something enchanting and paradisal about the old Coleridge. Yes. which was transformative for some of the people who, who met him. I have more questions to get through. What is it uniquely about the sea mm. that enables Coleridge to uh, journey and imagine and reflect on the world around him? He hadn't even been to sea. He hadn't been to sea, yeah. So if you think, um, first of all, 
the point about the sea is the, is the depth, the unseen depth. Coleridge, long before, you know, Freud or Jung, was the first person to speak of deeper than consciousness. He coined both unconscious and subconscious as possible words. Mm -hmm. um, and he used to refer to the little bit of your consciousness that you have up here as our I-ship, mm. I-ship, clearly playing on the sense of ship sailing. So I think one of the things that the sea gave him was this sense that we float on something much bigger than ourselves and that there are depths beneath, as it were, the travelling keel of our consciousness that we don't know, but which are real and support us. Mm -hmm. And in the poem, of course, there is a deep spirit under the keel, which at first seems quite difficult and vengeful, but it turns out to be doing things for the good of the mariner and helps to get him home. And there's a wonderful letter very late in Coleridge's life where he's trying to write another poem and it's not working. And he says, I haven't got the spirit under the keel. Hmm. This hasn't been gripped from below. My little ship isn't going because it's not. The spirit will be the one that makes the ship to go. So I think the sea provided that metaphor. Also, of course, the being out of sight of land, out of sight of the familiar landmarks. I've just given a very positive reading of the sea. But, of course, there's the storm, the calm, the doldrums. You know, the, the day after day, day after day, we stuck nor breath nor motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. And um, uh, there's, there's that or sense of losing, and of course, most famously of all, perhaps, alone, alone, all, all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea. Um, so everybody who sailed will tell, tell you that, that sense of being in the little boat, you know, particularly if you sail solo. I mean, as it happens, I love sea, I love sailing. I, I first heard verses from the Mariner recited by my mother as a little boy far out at sea, all away from the sight of land. I was brought up in Africa for the first 10 years of my life, and every year we came back to England by sea on little cargo boats. And my mother was a great fund of... I've dedicated this book to my mother, I have to say. Mm. It's a great fund of poetry, and, and among it were verses from the Mariner. Mm. Um, do you think, asks somebody, that the Mariner and what it tells us about sin and redemption would have been materially different if it had been written after Coleridge had returned to the Christian faith of his father? That's a very interesting question. I fear, it's a terrible thing to say, I fear it might have been worse. I mean, <laughs> Coleridge actually... Um, was usually pretty good at sniffing out cant and, and, and clumsy false piety. But he was also occasionally guilty of it, as anybody getting older might be. And I think providentially, as it were, he was given the poem in complete and pure symbolic form, um, as it were, unspoiled. Now, having said that, he wrote, the, the, I believe, that the, the gloss which he wrote probably about 1815 or 16 and was published in 1817, is not, you know, guilty of over-explicit piousness at all and actually is a wonderful compliment to the poem. Um, but I think, in a sense, he was, to borrow his own phrase about Shakespeare, he was directing a, a power and implicit wisdom deeper than consciousness when he wrote that poem, which is why I think it's so relevant and resonant for us now. And he was young. He was, in his... he was young. He was 25. What did he know? In his 20 years. <laughs> you know. And you mentioned Shakespeare. I mean, one of the things uh, we haven't really touched on, but he was 
a respected literary critic. Mm. I mean, Eliot thought a great he was one of the best. Yeah. Absolutely, and, yeah. And he really brought Hamlet back into... Completely. Didn't he? So, yeah. Uh, Not only Hamlet, but, but really the whole of Shakespeare. Mm. I mean, one of the most important uh, critical distinctions that Coleridge makes, which actually relates to his philosophical one about uh, imagination and fancy, he distinguishes between what he calls the organic and what he calls the mechanic way of writing. And the mechanic is all top-down and all on the rules and, and imposing on the material a shape that you want it, whatever the material itself is thinking about. Yeah. The organic, by contrast, as it were, is breathed into and unfolds from within, and its very form is the expression of its meaning. Now... Up till Coleridge's criticism, really, Shakespeare had been rather grudgingly admitted to the canon of the great as somebody who didn't know the rules properly. I mean, Milton, famously, you know, talk about patronising, says, Merry Shakespeare, nature's child, warbles his native wood notes wild. You know, as opposed to the august and decorous Latinisms of John Milton. Um, Coleridge said, no, no, Milton is right that Shakespeare is natural, but wrong to say he's therefore inferior. And one of the things that he does, not only with Hamlet, but, but with, is to show how even the smallest line um, in Shakespeare has some resonant, organic relation to the meaning of the whole. So, for example, Hamlet, the opening lines, who goes there? It's just an exchange on the watch of the towers, but it's actually the central question of the, of the entire play. <laughs> you know, the Tempest... You see the ship go down and come up again, and nobody's hurt. Bit of a plot spoiler, really. <laughs> but actually, it symbolically shows what's going on in the... So he had an incredibly sensitive reading of, 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 of Shakespeare. And we wouldn't read Shakespeare the way we read him now, were it not for Coleridge. Yes, it's interesting. I had an English teacher who always used to tell me at school that nothing important comes with instructions. Yeah. So I... yeah. <laughs> we know Coleridge famously said about Hamlet, somebody had said to Coleridge that, that he, would, he would give his right hand, literally give his right hand, to be able to meet Hamlet. And Coleridge said, I wouldn't even cross the road to meet Hamlet, I've only got to wake up and look in the mirror to meet Hamlet. Ah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, another question's come in. Now, obviously... Religious people talk about truth a lot. Uh, not always so hot with honesty, but they're very good at talking about truth. Uh, there's a question here about truth. Is truth absolute? And are we, through our infinite variety of perceptions of truth, capturing truth in all its totality, or is truth relative? OK. Uh, small question for the evening. Mm. Uh, this is certainly a question that Coleridge wrestled with. Coleridge was a great um, generator of new thought and word and meaning. He invented lots of terms. I've mentioned a few. Mm. One way to answer this is to tell you that Coleridge was the first person to use the word, the phrase, point of view, mm. metaphorically, which is how we all use it now. So originally, a point of view was a little place you went to on a map uh -huh. It was a viewpoint. It was to see something. And even in Coleridge and Wordsworth's day, there were people doing so-called picturesque tours of the Lake District. And picturesque meant you held up a little thing and pretended it was a painting and found the picturesque view. And there were various points of view that you could go to. Mm -hmm. And it was Coleridge who said, 
What you see of the mountain or the lake will very much depend upon your point of view. So it is when we discuss the much bigger mountains and the greater mysteries of the life of God in our midst. Where are you standing when you look? And that passed into general currency that we now use this phrase, point of view, but it was Coleridge who made the metaphor. Now, the point about that metaphor is twofold. Yes, it is certainly true that what you see, that several people looking from different points of view will describe the same mountain in completely different terms and they'll all be true. That, if you like, goes for a certain amount of relativity. But clearly there is a mountain mm -hmm. and it is the same mountain and it's a real mountain and not a made-up mountain. So I think uh, that Coleridge would say that there should be an absolute truth, I think he would say, was... was absolutely the case but he would think that it would take many many human perspectives and the accumulation of many of them to begin to get a fair view of what it was so an absolute truth but a conditioned and relative perspective mode of, mode of perceiving it but he he takes it a little bit further than that because he believed that um we could cleanse the doors of perception, to borrow a phrase of his contemporary William Blake's, yes. to some degree. And he believed that one of the ways we could do that was by actively going out with the imagination into what we saw, mm -hmm. rather than simply passively letting it beat upon the doors of the senses. Um, so he believed that, that one of, one of the... Um, the roles of the poetic imagination was to enable you not to be stuck with your own perspective and not to be stuck with your habitual guess at what things usually are, what he called the film of familiarity. Mm. And he, some people think of poetry as something that sort of lulls you and, and soothes you and is a sort of kind of verbal sort of mogadon, you know, but actually... For Coleridge, poetry wakes up the senses. It awakens the mind's attention. Yeah. Um, I, I read that when he was a young man, he wanted to found a, a sort of utopian commune. He did, yes. Which yeah. he called Pantisocracy. Pantisocracy, Which yeah. sounds a bit kinky to me. <laughs> what, is, what is Pantisocracy? Pantisocracy. So Pantisocracy was meant to be the equal governance of rule by all, pan as in all, and we think yep. of aristocracy or uh, oligarchy, this was going to be a pantisocracy. And it, it, they were going to go to the banks, the shores of the Susquehanna in America, and there's going to be 12 couples, you know, um, and they were going to have everything in common, and uh, they were going to make all their decisions jointly, and they were going to try and... This was in the first, you know, glorious throes of the French Revolution, when everything seemed possible. Um, you know, as Wordsworth said, you know, bliss it was that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. And um, they were deeply influenced by, by, by Rousseau, who, from whom we get the concept of the noble savage, and by uh, uh, an English anarchist philosopher called William Godwin, who was also a big influence on Shelley, mm. and um, was the uh, husband of Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote The Rights of Woman. So Coleridge was tapping into that very radical stream. And the flaw in the plan, of course, was that it assumed human perfectibility. Mm. It assumed that if you got rid of bad social institutions, mm -hmm. what they called positive institutions, meaning impositions, that left in a state of nature, human beings would just flower into it. So there was no sense of fall. 
Mm -hmm. Then, of course, what happened um, was the, the French Revolution turned sour. The, you had the, 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 the blood and the terror. Then you had France throwing up its own tyrant. You know, in all your high hopes, there's a period of reaction. France invades neutral Switzerland. These young idealists are, are having to confront that, you know, as Leonard Cohen, another poet, put it later, there's a crack in everything. And in a sense, the mariner is a response to that. Mm. It's about how do I deal with the knowledge of this flaw without giving up the hope. The problem politically was that there was a tide running right across Europe of reaction, of retrenchment, of, of people saying, we tried to live a better life, we had a little go in the revolution, it all came to nothing. So suddenly we're back to the bad old days and we're back to repression of rights and... I mean, in a sense, very much what many people may be feeling now about what's happening in the world, what's happening in America and in, and in Europe. And the real question was, how do I learn the lessons and recognise the human fallibility and be practical, but not give up hope? Yes. And that very much became Coleridge's, you know, personal quest. And, and that's one of the things that kept him campaigning. Um, and, you know, all the time he was doing all these other things and struggling with it. He was a, he was a fighting journalist, you know, he wrote regular, uh, regular pieces for the Morning Chronicle and, and he was alive to the issues of his day. And do you think, because uh, there's a question here about, which I'll come back to, which is tied into this a little bit, but do you think he kept positive or was he, you know, you can look at the crack and you can look at the cracks happening in the world mm. and you can be pulled down. Mm. But as, as a friend of mine said to me, you know, Martin Luther King never once said, I have a nightmare. <laughs> he said, I have a dream. Yeah. And, and it's only the dream and the vision that actually will translate yeah. and be attractive and create progress and change if you become jaundiced mm. Do you, do you feel he was a hopeful optimist? Um, eventually. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important for me, one of the things that makes, makes uh, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner such a compelling poem for me is that it literally has a nightmare. There is a figure in it called the light nightmare life in death. Yeah. And he gives full weight to that experience of helplessness and horror. Mm. And I don't believe anybody, in a sense, who doesn't say that that is part of human experience and give it its weight. But having done so, he then says that is not the end of the story. Yes. He allows for a transfigured vision. He allows you to go back and see the same thing with a new light and a new hope. Do you think he ever lost God? Did God disappear? Um, I think certainly his will to live disappeared. I mean, he, he, he certainly had suicidal thoughts. Uh, I think there was a point, certainly, when he was fleeing from Malta on his way back, when the opium was in, gripping him so badly and he feared that perhaps he'd come back and his children wouldn't be alive, when, I mean, he puts it in the mariner, so lonely twas that God himself scarce seemed there to be. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting use of the word seemed. He couldn't. After the, the, the real turnaround crisis, which was a, an overdose and, a, and an ab absolute agony, which interestingly took place in the upstairs room in a pub outside Bath, you know, all the Greyhound Inn, but he was there for about seven days. He had um, the faith that he'd had in his head moved into his heart. He wrote about this experience later. He said, I can say without, I hope this doesn't seem blasphemous, he says, but I have been 
crucified, dead, descended into hell and resurrected. That's what that experience was. I think after that, however bad things were, he had the sign of God's grace somewhere deeply incised into him. God wrote his name right on the inside of Coleridge's wounds rather than on the top of his best achievements. So in that sense, after that, he never lost his sense of God. And do you think he wrote, uh, when, when I'm trying to help people think through their preaching, I always say it's better to, to speak from your scars and from your wounds. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just uh, let a bit of healing take place, but don't forget to where the wound was. Yeah. Do you think he was speaking from wounds? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think um, one of the reasons why Coleridge was, in some ways, I think, much more helpful to the younger generation and much more admired by the likes of Shelley and Keats and Byron than Wordsworth was that there was something in the end quite self-satisfied and sort of smug about Wordsworth. I mean, he kind of ascended a lofty mountain into kind of monumental Victorian respectability and wrote these appalling ecclesiastical sonnets and, you know, became the tax collector in Westmoreland. And people felt there was something impregnable about Wordsworth. Mm. Whereas Coleridge was obviously a mess and, you know, he made no attempt to hide what was wrong with his life. And yet out of him flowed this constant yearning towards meaning and entreaty to others to join with him in finding it. And actually that was very attractive because it was honest. So do you think in the end, and uh, there's one last question I must get to, but do you think, therefore, that his faith was in the end somewhere where all these loose ends found some sort of home? Yes, I think think in the end his faith really turned on and returned to to love. I mean, it may sound sort of trite, but it was the, the deepest thing, you know. He'd written all those years ago as a young man, he prayeth best who loveth best. Mm. He once wrote a poem called The Pains of Sleep, which was the most harrowing description of, of cold turkey and a bad trip that you could ever have. But it fin- finish is with the words, to love and to be loved is all I need, and whom I love, I love indeed. And um, I think in the end, his faith turned on the conviction that the God who is love has never ceased to love us in spite of everything. That's hard to believe. It is hard to believe. And it's actually, but it's actually what keeps you going yes. in the end. Yes. Is the recognition that that love actually becomes most apparent when you yourself feel that you're most unlovable. Yes. And then the danger is, as we've said here before, you start hating your neighbour as yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Um, there's a question here. Do you think Coleridge was a prophet? Uh, and this is going to be, I'm afraid, the last question. In fact, we've managed to get through all of them. Do you think Coleridge was a prophet? Where do you see the prophets in our own time? Wow. That was... So, yes, I do think Coleridge was a prophet. I think that... Uh, he said, in various ways and in various places, that if we accept what he called the watchmaking scheme of things, the reduction of the universe to an immense heap of little things, we will end up failing to distinguish between a person and a thing. We will see people as just collections of bits and pieces and things. And he said, all of moral life depends on the distinction between a per- the sacred distinction between a person and a thing. And he said, the only way we're going to get around that 
is by founding our, our whole view not on the statement it is. He says, it's no good starting with it is and seeing if you can finally figure out how a person emerges as I am. You're going to have to start with I am and then figure out how to get to it is. And I think he's right, and I think we're seeing more and more that we have a crisis, if you like, of meaninglessness, a crisis of kind of pointlessness we have. I think that lies behind a lot of the other things that are going wrong for us, is that there's a basic sense of anomie and dislocation and, and dissociation between ourselves. The very webs that hold us together seem broken, and we're just like isolated individual consumers, manipulated and manipulating, you know, and just coding and decoding. Mm. And until we can return to some sense of the givenness of personhood and that the establishment of love between persons as the only foundation for doing anything, you know, we're not going to get anything else right. So in that sense, I think he looks towards a crisis that we have and, and shows where the priorities should be. I mean, the second question, uh, you know, who are the prophets now? Well, in a sense, you know, it's hard to know. I think there are some, some people, certainly among the community of poets. I mean, I look across at America and, uh, you know, obviously there's so much there that might lead you to despair. But then there are writers, if you think about, there's a great poet and environmental writer, Wendell Berry, mm. who's addressing the political thing. He's an old guy living on a farm in Kentucky. But from his mouth is coming extraordinary wisdom, which is, you know, inspiring and re-inspiring, you know, many people. And so I think, I think sometimes in the last places you expected, you know, a voice, a voice is raised up and, and, and we get some sense of calling. Certainly I, I don't think, either by looking at biblical history or by looking at actual, you know, European history, we should expect the prophets necessarily to arise from within the enclave of the church. Sometimes they're people that the church has thrust out of the door who then speak back into it and, uh, and change it. Uh, but I don't think God will leave us without those voices that, that arouse and alert and, and awake us. Mm. Um, but sometimes they needn't be contemporaries. In some ways, I think Coleridge is such it's a voice. One of them. And I'm, that's part of the thrust of this book. I mean, I hope people enjoy it because it's a, you know, it's a fascinating story, both the mariner and his own life. But throughout it, I'm saying, well, where are we in this story? Mm. What does this bit of the poem have to say to us as we are now? Mm. I don't know the answers to all those questions, but I ask them. <laughs> but it's much more exciting uh, questions more than answers. Um, finally, uh, here we are in a, in a time of extraordinary shipwrecked philosophies. Mm. You know, all the answers that yeah. people have been living with seem to be shipwrecked. And we're in this funny position of, in the West anyway, of having a, quite a lot to live with, but very little sense of what to live for. Mm. What is it that you would want us to take away tonight from Coleridge? What's his great gift to us at this present point? I think his great gift is that you already have within you by being able to say, I am, and by looking out and perceiving the world. The God who made the world and who called you into being is already at work, even as you just do that. And that you can learn. I love the, the prayer he has for his child. I quoted it early. So shalt thou see and hear the lovely shapes and sounds 
intelligible of that eternal language which thy God utters. I think what he offers us is to say, don't give in to meaninglessness. Don't think that nothing adds up. Tune your ears. See in the shapes and sounds something intelligible. Keen and listen for the meaning. And that's what will save you. It, it's almost trying to read the love between the lines yeah. of existence. Absolutely. And I think that's exactly what the mariner learns to do. Learns yeah. to do, yes. I could sit here all night. Um, <laughs> Archdeacon Julius Hare, in 1846, published a book, um, The Mission of the Comforter, and he dedicated it to Coleridge. And he said this, to the honoured memory of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the Christian philosopher, who through dark and winding paths was led to the light in order that others, by his guidance, might also reach that light. Mm, that's a very touching dedication to a book. And um, I wanted to mention it because just by sitting next to you and hearing you uh, and this extraordinary which I'm very envious of, extraordinary memory you have for <laughs> quotations. And, uh, I mean, really, you are immersed in the sea of Coleridge's yeah. life and, yeah. and, and the depths of it. And we just look on in, in awe, really. Um, and, and, and I feel that we've been learning such a lot. Um, I was trying to ask myself, would Coleridge have liked meeting Malcolm Guide? <laughs> Uh, and Coleridge said a few things uh, which I think are all appropriate to you. He said the first, he said the best physician is the ingenious inspirer of hope. And I think you're certainly an inspirer of hope. He also said that no mind is thoroughly well organized that is deficient in a sense of humor. <laughs> and you make us giggle and, and see our ironies. Um, but he also said that Christianity is not a theory or a speculation at the end of the day. He said it is a life, not a philosophy of life, but a life and a living process. Mm. And I think what you've done in this book uh, is help us translate the poem into our own lives through his and that's an enormous, an enormous gift uh, of which we're partaking. And on behalf of everybody here tonight, uh, for all you are and for all your learning, which you so enthusiastically share, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.